Welcome to Ejo, the podcast. Welcome to the fifth episode of EGIL, the podcast. My name is Sarah Nauen. I'm an editor-in-chief of the European Journal of International Law and currently in the beautiful hills around Florence, Italy, at the European University Institute. As usual, with me are Dapo Akande, Marco Milanovic and Filippa Webb. Marco, Dapo and Filippa, may I start with a personal question? How do you feel? You are all professors of international law in the United Kingdom. But in recent weeks, the United Kingdom, or at least its current government, did not seem a big supporter of our field. It introduced a bill that by the government's own admission would violate a treaty it had signed only a year ago. Albeit, so the Northern Ireland Secretary added, in a specific and limited way. And in another bill, it makes it harder to comply with its international obligations to prosecute torture, war crimes and crimes against humanity. Have these developments made you want to follow Amal Clooney, who resigned from her role as UK Special Envoy on Media Freedom because she found it impossible to promote international standards abroad as a representative of a country that itself states its intention to breach international law? Or have these developments strengthened your resolve? It is all the more important to teach and preach international law in the UK. Sarah, I don't see it as a binary choice necessarily. So Amal Clooney resigned as envoy in order to promote respect for international obligations through the high-level panel, which is an independent body chaired by Lord Newberger, and her work on media freedom continues in that way. Uh, She felt holding a post that associated her with the government uh, made that role untenable. So I actually see her resolve in... uh, spreading the word of international law as strengthened uh, through this action. And I would say that that mine is too, given uh, these recent developments. I think it's a moment of reckoning for international lawyers, especially international lawyers in the UK. And I'm very glad it's our topic today. So for me, perversely, I actually think that um, this whole episode might have some positive, you know, some, some positives for international law in the UK in the sense that international law is spoken about on the news every day, more so than at any time in the past couple of years. And also we hear lots of support actually for international law in in the UK at this point in time. So whatever happens with this bill, I think knowledge about international law will be increased in the UK and it actually will give more of an opportunity for us to be able to explain what international law does and why it's important. I uh, actually completely agree with Dapo in the sense that it's rare to have a country where so many domestic political uh, figures and and, and uh, high-profile individuals are willing to fight for international law in the way so many people are now doing in the UK. So there is a reason to be hopeful. And on the other hand, uh, we've had far worse times when it comes to compliance with international law in the UK. I mean, just think of 2003 and the decision to invade Iraq and all the consequences that that has had. So this does not, it compares in some ways to the UK's decision to invade Iraq, 
But in terms of its magnitude and its effects on the international legal order, it is incomparably smaller. So I, in, in that sense, I am, I am not, I'm, I, don't, I don't have existential angst, if you will, uh, 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 produced by Boris Johnson's government introducing this bill into parliament. Can I just say something about the analogy with the Iraq episode? I know we'll come to the details of this particular episode, but despite the violation of international law by the UK in Iraq, one of the positive things that actually came out of it was increased parliamentary scrutiny for the use of force by the UK. And so since then, actually, emerged that parliamentary convention that, you know, the government's got to go to parliament, they've got to debate it. There's always discussion about international law whenever the UK proposes to use force. And all of that came out of a moment which is not entirely, as Marcus just said, actually dissimilar to what's happening now. We'll see whether that happens this time too. We'll have to wait and see. Let's turn to what is happening now. Before we go into the depth of the legal discussions, can somebody explain what the controversy is about? So, yeah, so the, the, the issue is basically the internal market bill that the UK government has laid down before Parliament and Parliament, the, the, the two chambers of Parliament, the House of Commons and the House of Lords, are now debating whether to enact the bill. Um, most of the bill is really non-controversial for our purposes and deals with various aspects of the functioning of the UK internal market post-Brexit. Uh, but there are three clauses in the bill that are really unprecedented in the sense that I am not aware of uh, an, an act of parliament in the UK or, or, or a similar legislative effort anywhere else in the world, but maybe we, people know some some, some uh, uh, analogous examples. Effectively, uh, so clauses 42 and 43 of the bill allow, um, uh, through these clauses, Parliament is effectively authorizing ministers of the British government to enact regulations that would depart from the withdrawal agreement that the UK had signed with the European Union uh, and from the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, that effectively tries to resolve the conundrum of the, the flow of goods and services and people uh, on the island of Ireland uh, uh, post, uh, post-Brexit and after the end of the transition period. Uh, so effectively, the government is asking Parliament to authorize it to breach commitments that the government itself had entered into less than a year ago and that Parliament had also endorsed by, by adopting an act of Parliament uh, uh, that... Uh, gave direct effect to the withdrawal agreement in UK law. And then clause, clause 45 goes even farther than that by effectively trying to oust uh, judicial review, whether under d- domestic uh, law principles or EU or international law principles, um, of any of these regulations that the UK ministers uh, make. So that's what the, what, 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 what the bill does. And what's so extraordinarily curious about it is that the UK legal officers, the, uh, the, the sort of the lawyers providing official advice to the government, clearly said before the bill was laid to, uh, before Parliament that enacting these regulations would constitute a breach of international law. And that's, that's what's so remarkable about it. Because normally when states violate international law, and they do it all the time, they will provide you know, their interlocutors, other states, with at least some kind of 
facially plausible or maybe not so plausible legal argument for why they're justified in acting the way they're doing. They would not admit beforehand that their intention is to break international law. Maybe So maybe this is a sort of uncommon act of honesty on behalf of a government. I, I, I know how to characterize it, you know, or maybe it's just not terribly wise, but that's what the government uh, is basically asking parliament to authorize it to do. Or is it an act of national pride? Parliamentary sovereignty prevails over international law here. We don't care about international law. We care about parliamentary sovereignty. Well, that would have been open to the government to enact legislation after, you know, uh, at any later point in time to specifically breach international law. But what they're doing here is to enact legislation to say that we might breach international law. So it seems to me that they're actually trying to make a point. So it's not just that they are breaking international law. They're trying to make a point that they might break international law. So it seems to me that it goes beyond the parliamentary sovereignty point. So then the question is, what, why are they doing this? I mean, one theory is that, look, they're doing this in the context of the ongoing negotiations with the EU about the post-Brexit relationship between the UK and, and the UK. And this is a way of putting pressure on the EU in the context of those negotiations. So sending that signal that we can breach the past agreement is a way of trying to get a better deal from from the EU. That, that that's probably the only. Um, I would. I, I'm hesitating to use the word rational explanation, but sort of the only kind of policy based explanation for what they're doing, for 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 why they're putting forward this bill. There might be other explanations. You know that they are being driven by some kind of ideological uh, uh, agenda. Uh, which does not just include all the, the UK's relationship with the EU, but generally the, the UK's relationship with international uh, law, international norms, with European Convention on Human Rights, uh, and so forth. Uh, now, we are not political scientists, nor are we experts in this, so it's, it's hard for me to speculate whether the signal that the UK is sending the EU by enacting this uh, uh, law is actually going to help it in these trade negotiations. From my standpoint, it seems like an incredibly daft thing to do. You know, you are not going to persuade your partner to give you a better deal by telling them, oh, by the way, we're going to breach the earlier deal we we freely, um, uh, you know, agreed to. Now, whether, you know, the, the, the Boris Johnson government is really, you know, a bunch of Jedi masters that sort of understand this better than we do, I don't know, but that seems to be their their goal. Um, it's an interesting contrast in a very different situation, but to Syria 2013, where the UK published the summary of its legal advice on humanitarian intervention. Now, uh, most people would probably think humanitarian intervention is not lawful under international law. There's not enough state practice or opinio juris. Uh, it's been the longstanding UK position that it is international law. Uh, and that advice was founded in international law. So it sought to say we would be complying with international law by taking this action, even though many others would say it's 
breaking it. Uh, but in, in that situation, they very much wanted uh, to justify themselves uh, under international law and not any other notion of parliamentary sovereignty. Let's go back to some of the legal technicalities. We've spoken a few times about the act breaching the law, the bill breaching the law, but also about the fact that what this act would do once adopted is to authorize ministers to deviate from the withdrawal agreement. What would be the moment of the breach? Is this bill in and of itself a breach, for instance, to negotiate in good faith? Is the adoption of the act a breach? Or is the actual or the minister using the authority only, only that? Is that the moment of the breach? So this is a debated uh, topic in international law, Sarah. Um, the ILC in its articles on state responsibility and the, the commentary to it said that certain obligations may be breached by the mere passage of legislation that's incompatible with international law. So that would be your middle scenario where the law is passed but not yet implemented. And the Permanent Court of International Justice in, in a case um, about German interests in Polish Upper Silesia, very specific, but it did look at the conformity of a domestic law, a Polish law, with Poland's international obligations. And it said it wasn't too abstract to look at it in this way, even before it's implemented. Um, and you see human rights bodies quite frequently looking at the mere passage of legislation and its compatibility with human rights. A famous case in Australia concerned uh, a criminal law that um, uh, targeted homosexual conduct. And even though um, the person bringing the case had not been charged under the law uh, and there was no active investigation into his conduct, the Human Rights Committee found that the mere existence of that criminal law had a profound and harmful impact and ordered it to be repealed. So in my view, I think, I think uh, Philippa is absolutely right that there are cases where the mere passage of legislation would be in breach of international law. But in my view, at least from what I've seen from this legislation, uh, the, the bill so far, the mere passage of it would not breach international law because what the legislation is trying to do in this particular case is that it's trying to give the minister a power to do something in future. So there might be cases where international obligations, for example, require states to give a certain guarantee. And by passing legislation, you're breaching that guarantee or cases where the legislation is itself discriminatory or, you know, those kinds of cases. But to me, actually, this, this feels different. This is a case where it is the further regulation that is passed by the minister, adopted by the minister, which would then in itself be in breach. Um, I don't see anything that says that, you know, in the withdrawal agreement that itself suggests that the UK has to give these kind of general guarantees not to do things that might later on be, be in breach. Is this altered by the fact that the withdrawal agreement has a provision that says that the state shall ensure compliance with giving the agreement direct effect in domestic law? I don't think so, because as far as I'm aware, the agreement does have effect in the sense that Parliament has already given it effect, right? The problem, though, is that Parliament is now giving the minister 
power to change that. Um, and the question is, you know, the minister's not yet changed that, but the minister has the power now to change that. And on one level, you can say that this is a power that parliament actually has. Parliament could pass an act which, as a matter of UK domestic law, supersedes the withdrawal, the act that implements the withdrawal agreement. All that parliament is now doing is that it's letting the minister do that rather than parliament doing that. So it's not clear to me that passing the act in itself would violate that provision. Well, so first of all, let's just clarify things a bit. So there is no doubt, there's no doubt at all, that if a minister passed one of these regulations, that they would breach international law, right? I mean, if the UK UK government's own legal advisors say this, there's simply no doubt about the matter, right? The debatable question is whether the mere enactment of the bill would breach international law. And there is, I think, in favor of that view, there is a, a somewhat stronger argument than DAPO suggests, in the sense that if you look at the withdrawal agreement, Article 4 of the agreement effectively requires the UK to adopt primary legislation that would allow judges to give direct effect to the withdrawal agreement. And it's the the, 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 the Clause 45 of the bill that sort of outs judicial review of these regulations, you could say is in principle incompatible with that obligation. And then Article 5 of the Withdrawal Agreement uh, requires states part, uh, the, the UK and the EU to refrain from any action uh, that would um, that could jeopardize the attainment of the objectives of the agreement, and so the 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 label that's the 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 title under the that article is good faith. So it's you could argue that the UK is effectively acting in bad faith by by enacting this bill. Uh, I, I I can see arguments in, in you know in favor of both positions. To an extent, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the signal the UK government is sending, and that signal is that they're ready to go back on their word that they gave less than a year ago. And that's the that's the fundamental issue. And, you know, that's what distinguishes these cases, this case from all the other examples we've given beforehand, where, you know, the UK government would offer some kind of legal justification for what they're doing. And all they're doing now is saying, well, domestically, constitutionally, we can do it, which is true. Right? But they're not giving a legal justification at the international plane. As Marco mentioned, what is quite exceptional is that the government, by its own admission, um, indicates that if the act is adopted, it would violate international law. Critical international lawyers have emphasized that every rule has an exception, every legal argument has a legal counter-argument. So couldn't the government have tried a bit more and make some legal arguments to get this passed? And can you you know, put on that hat. If you had to make these arguments, what would you what would you argue? One thing we've heard recently is this: the word of changing circumstances. So the withdrawal agreement was last year. This year is a new reality. Does this argument of uh, circumstances have changed have any chance of success in international law? No, it doesn't. <laughs> and I love this precisely because for that very reason that this is an episode that demonstrates that the strong indeterminacy thesis of the crits is overstated. You know, so that the idea that there can never be clarity in the law really doesn't make sense. Uh, So if the UK government's own lawyers are not able to articulate a theory, that tells you a lot. 
Now, the, the whole fundamental change of circumstances, rebus extantibus thing, was floated a while ago, you know, remember, you know, in this endless saga of Brexit, when, when there was this whole issue um, uh, of Theresa May's deal being debated in Parliament and Jeffrey Cox, then the Attorney General, sort of implicitly saying the UK may be able to rely on this idea of fundamental change of circumstances. Um, and, and I wrote a, a lengthy blog post at the time about that particular invocation of, of Article 62 VCLT. If you look at how the, 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 the fundamental change in circumstances rule is formulated in Article 62 of the Vienna Convention, you'll see that there's just no way you could make an even remotely plausible argument that it would apply for the basic reason that these circumstances have been foreseen, right? You cannot say these are unchanged, uh, th- these are circumstances that have changed that you could not foresee back in the day when everybody a year ago when the withdrawal agreement was negotiated was aware, for example, that the, 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 the negotiations between the UK and the EU on a trade agreement might fail. You know, everybody knew that. So you cannot change that that's a fundamental, uh, you cannot claim that that's a fundamental change in circumstances. Um, moreover, there is a provision in, in the, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, Article 16, that is precisely tailored to deal with this type of situation, which allows the, the, the UK to enact certain safeguard measures uh, under certain substantial and procedural conditions that are precisely meant to mitigate uh, uh, some kind of bad effects on the economy and society in Northern Ireland that might materialize from the continued application of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And obviously, we're, not, we're nowhere near that yet. Right? So that's why the UK government cannot uh, uh, rely on Article 62, nor is it trying to do it. Right? They're kind of speaking this, this kind of language from time to time, but it's clear that the lawyers have not offered this as a, as a potential rationale. Another rationale might be the statement that the uh, UK government gave a week ago uh, um, after all this pushback uh, uh, within Parliament, both from other parties, but also from all the other previous prime ministers, including Tory prime ministers, including Theresa May, saying, actually, no, we are act- enacting this bill preventively to enable us to respond if the EU acts in bad faith, if the EU acts in material breach of the, of the, of the uh, withdrawal agreement. Now, that also seems like a somewhat bogus rationale, for the very basic reason that if you were responding to a material breach in a lawful way, you would not be violating international law, which is what the lawyers are saying the government is doing. So it's a very, very strange situation. Okay, another thing that they've invoked is said, well, you know, we're violating international law, but only in a specific and limited way. Is that of any legal relevance? To me, it sounds a bit like I'm a bit pregnant. (laughs) specifically and limitedly pregnant. <laughs> I think it's just a no, isn't it? I, I just don't see any possible argument that can be made, to, at least as a matter of law, to suggest that this is of any relevance. I also think it's such a dangerous argument because the way this was um, presented in Parliament is a completely subjective assessment of what is specific and limited. Um, it's one thing perhaps for the UK to do it, but even then I'm not sure. But imagine, you know, 
an autocratic state <laughs> deciding what was a specific and limited breach and therefore not really such a big deal. Um, this would set a really worrying precedent in other countries. I think there might be one reason why this is the case, like one reason why they would use that language. And remember, the Northern Ireland secretary was reading from a prepared text when he uttered those words. And those words must have been lawyered, right? So that language must have been agreed and given to him to read out in parliament in response to a question. And the only reason I can think of for using that language is to say, well, we would be breaching the withdrawal agreement, but our breach, very nice, tender, specific, and limited, would not be a material breach. Mm. And because it's not a material breach, the EU could not use Article 60 of the Vienna Convention to suspend or terminate the withdrawal agreement. So that's, I think, the basic idea there, that the, the UK would not be committing a material breach. Now, whether that's true or not, God knows, but, but, like, but that's the, you know, we would have to look at the, you know, whether the, as the Vienna Convention says, uh, 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 the, the breach um, uh, uh, violates a provision essential to the accomplishment of the ob object or purpose of the treaty to establish whether the breach is material or not, specific or limited, though it might be. Yeah, so the question is not so much whether it's a big breach or a small breach, but if it's a breach of a significant provision or a breach of an insignificant provision. And yes, I guess we're talking exactly. here about significant provisions. Precisely. I mean, right, so, so the EU was insistent on uh, 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 the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Pr Protocol having direct effect, for example. You know, the EU would definitely say, well, this is actually essential for the object and purpose of the treaty. And of course, this was the whole debate around the adoption of the withdrawal agreement in, I was going to say in the first place, but actually in the last place, you know, the whole withdrawal agreement and the adoption of it was all dependent, actually, on reaching agreement on the Northern Ireland Protocol. So beyond the legal technicalities, what is the broader significance of what is happening at the moment? What does the introduction of this bill say about or mean to the rule of law in the United Kingdom and possibly the so-called international rule of law? What's, I think, significant here is that obviously if this bill is passed as a matter of domestic law, it will be the law. And so if the government actually goes ahead and adopts these regulations, the government will, you know, if the minister adopts these regulations, the government will not be in breach of, of domestic law. But from a constitutional sort of point of view, internal to the UK, there's a, you know, one can take the view that, you know, the, the UK is a state that's based on the rule of law and that the rule of law includes a commitment to observing international law. And in fact, in the UK, there is this thing called the, the ministerial code, which effectively tells ministers that they have an overarching duty to abide by the law. That actually used to say, until it was changed in 2015, that ministers had an overarching duty to abide by the law, including international law. And when it was changed in 2015 to delete the words international law, the government specifically said that that did not change the substance, that there was still a commitment to abiding by international law. And that view that the ministerial code includes an overarching duty to abide by international law 
has been reinforced by by the courts in in a case since since then. And just dapper that case uh, in 2018 in the Court of Appeal um, adopted the government's approach at the time. The government said to the court, "We believe it includes international law," and the court endorsed that. Yeah, exactly. So what this means is that in in the UK in general, the position has been taken at least by some, and the government has in this in these instances we've just been pointed to pointing to seem to endorse it that abiding by the rule of law includes abiding by international law. And so what the government is now doing seems to be in direct contradiction with with that with that approach. And then of course, secondly, there's the point that you've kind of alluded to, Sarah, which is that internationally so leaving the uk aside now internationally the uk is a country that has been consistent in actually promoting international law and so this makes it much more difficult for the uk to then continue to argue that other states should abide by international law when it is suggesting that there are circumstances when it will itself not abide by by international law that's right and Back to um, the Vienna Convention, our our favourite treaty (laughs) of this podcast, Article 27 of that treaty says that a state cannot invoke its domestic law to justify a breach of international law. And that's also custom and and binding on the UK. Uh, I'm also struck, you know, by this whole separation that the Attorney General uh, and and the government are, 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 are trying to make between the rule of law domestically and the rule of law internationally. So they are basically saying it would be completely improper, outrageous, for a minister to do to suggest doing something that would go against domestic law, but it is not improper or outrageous for a minister to suggest doing something that goes international law. And it's very difficult for them to justify why exactly that's the case, because they're not trying to deny the normative character of international law or in fact that they've agreed to this particular treaty less than a year ago f- knowing fully well you know what they were committing to uh, but they're trying to make this separation uh, 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 you know of, of, of the rule of law into these two planes and they do so invoking very formal arguments you know saying that if parliament passed a statute that would domestically trump uh, an international legal rule or the withdrawal agreement or whatever, which is true, you know. But so what? That does not answer the fundamental rule of law question of why are you suggesting this in the first place, knowing that you would breach international law, right? Um, and we have had sort of cases, especially in the human rights sphere and even in the EU sphere, where domestic constitutional courts have said, you know, think of the German constitutional courts, Zolange jurisprudence, saying, you know, there are some fundamental principles of the German basic law that we would not allow EU law to override. And that's also fine. So we've had these kinds of, in the pluralist legal order in which you live, we've had these debates about who's the biggest dog on the street, you know, who's, who's superior to whom. But again, that's a separate question from why are you suggesting to break the law in the first place while admitting you're breaking the law? And that's, again, what's so curious about this case which I, I, I am not aware of a similar precedent. 
but even from the perspective of the domestic rule of law, one aspect would be, okay, do you, within the domestic rule of law, comply with international law? But the other aspect in this specific bill seems to be the pushback against judicial review, the role of the judges mm -hmm. in the English legal order. And I think that's also what we possibly see in that bill I alluded to in the beginning, the Overseas Operations Bill, and for more debate on that bill, look at Ejil Tolk. <laughs> uh, but there too, we see an attempt to limit the role of judges. But top, moving on from judges to other key actors in all of this, and as a final question to go back where we started, we started with you and your role as professors of international law. And that was a very firm, yes, international law matters to us, and we will continue to teach it in the UK. What about government legal advisors? What is their role in this? And should they continue with their jobs once their governments have given uh, or taken a position that to be willing to violate international law? So in this particular uh, scenario, we've seen at least two government lawyers resign, right? So we had the government's um, senior sort of civil servant lawyer, if you like, resign. And then we've had the Lord Advocate General resign. And the parallels here are with other cases where government lawyers have resigned for breaches of international law. So we saw it in Iraq, and then we saw it even back when the UK allowed the use of force in Libya in, 19, in 1986. It's exceptional, but I think there are cases where you know government lawyers have to think about their own individual responsibility and whether or not, um, as an individual, actually what you are doing is in itself a breach of these principles relating to the rule of law. It's very courageous. It's, you know, essentially it's falling on your sword, isn't it? Particularly, most particularly for the civil servants. They're the ones that I actually really commend, right? It's nice when government ministers resign, but, you know, government <laughs> ministers resign and then very often they come back again. But for the civil servants, you're basically giving up your, your career. It's, you know, it's, a, it's really a career ending moment. Uh, and so they're to be commended for saying, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be part of this. And I agree that, you know, um, you do have a responsibility actually to, to do this. Again, I think Iraq here is an excellent comparator point. Um, and, and you'll recall that one lawyer, one government lawyer resigned at the time. And that was the, the FCO's deputy legal advisor, Elizabeth Wamshurst. And she, I, when I teach sort of the Iraq war to, to my USAD, in my USAD Bellum class, I ask the students to read, you know, the Chilcot Commission uh, uh, report on, on, on the legal advice and so on. And we always look at Elizabeth, uh, at Elizabeth's um, letter of resignation. And I also ask them to take a look at how she was received when the inquiry was, was hearing her testimony. And what always struck me was that Elizabeth was the only person, if I'm not mistaken, whom the audience applauded when she finished her testimony at the inquiry. And it was just, you know, an incredibly powerful testament sort of to the strength of our profession and to the commitment of the rule of law that she individually made in that instance. And I think it is important for government lawyers to do that when they feel they need to. As, as in this particular case. Marco, I absolutely take what you say about Elizabeth's um, famous uh, resignation letter. And it's a pity that Sir Jonathan Jones hasn't made his reasons for his resignation public in the same way, because I think these 
explanations of, of conscience and their vision of their role can serve as a guiding light to others who may find themselves in a dilemma in the future. So just to be clear about the point that I was making, it's that you know government lawyers have a responsibility to consider whether they should resign. And there are many cases where government lawyers work on something which is a breach of international law or a breach of the law and can quite rightly think that they shouldn't resign. They should make their views known. They should insist on their views. But there are many battles to fight and they will continue to fight those battles until they stay on. And that could be fine too. Yeah, agreed. Let's end on this very inclusive, uh, open-ended note. Thanks for tuning in. For other episodes of the podcast and much more international law, visit egiltalk.org.